There are business leaders that are making so much more than profit in their enterprises. They're elevating their businesses, teams, and themselves to add more value. And so can you. Welcome to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show with host Chris Cooper. If you were looking for ways to elevate success while contributing to a better world, you'll want to listen in for the next hour. Now here's your host, Chris Cooper. Hello, this is Chris Cooper and a huge welcome to the Business Elevation Show on Voice America for yet another week. And I am delighted today to be uh, talking about uh, the hunt for unicorns again, um, but this time with Paul Downs, the uh, co-author um, who co-authored it with Winston Marr. I just found this topic in conversation the last time we, we covered on it just so insightful to learn about something I hadn't just appreciated. It was really happening and was really impacting the, the business world um, globally. Before we go into talking about the specific show, though, I'd like to say a, a huge thank you to my guests uh, last week, to Pat Headley. Uh, Pat and I had a, a fabulous conversation. I Really, really enjoyed it. We talked about meeting 100 people, new people, why you should keep on uh, connecting and uh, meeting different people and how, how that can really elevate your thinking and elevate your business and the different ways you can do it. We also had lots of fun talking about Ted Lasso. If anybody uh, uh, there doesn't know who Ted Lasso is, check out, out Apple TV. It's uh, Pat's and I's favorite show, and uh, we're talking about the many leadership lessons of Ted Lasso. So I'm doing a big, a big push on behalf of Apple TV at the moment, but, but um, I'm loving Ted Lasso. My wife is now, and we're about to watch the second series. It's that good. So do check that out if you're interested in you know, just thinking about your own leadership style. Sometimes you can get great input from watching TV shows. Uh, Ted Lasso, uh, Designated Survivor was another one that I loved. Um, so uh, do, do, do check that out. Um, but once again, a big thanks to Pat Headley. Really great conversation. Lots of insight, lots of wisdom. So do check it out if you uh, need that little bit of a nudge to get out there and uh, network and talk to different people uh, to build your, your business and develop yourself. So today, I'm delighted to have Paul Downs with me. Um, this subject, I think, really does help us understand you know, an important component in the backdrop of global business, of finance, of competition today. As I mentioned, I interviewed Winston Ma, who kindly was uh, referred to me by, by um, Judy Robinette, who's a wonderful uh, friend and I think friend of Paul's by the, the way he's smiling at me at the moment. Yes. Wonderful lady. Uh, and uh, she introduced initially to me with Winston, to Winston. And we talked about the hunt for unicorns, how sovereign funds are reshaping investment in the digital economy. And I thought it was actually one of the most fascinating interviews of, uh, of 2020 because um, it's, it did, did help me to appreciate an area that I just didn't really understand. And a number of people who I have referred this interview to as well, they also said the same thing. They, they thought it was really insightful. In fact, I think I've referred it twice this week, actually, to, to people recommending listening, listening to it and listening to part two um, outside of internet, but, but personally. 
Now, my guest, Paul, practiced international law for more than four decades, uh, most recently as a partner at Hogan Lovells in New York. He co-founded the Sovereign Investor Practice and initiated its annual Sovereign Investor Conference. He's represented sovereign investors transacting in assets globally. He's a current uh, um, and past director of many international companies, not-for-profit organizations, including International House New York, the Council for the United States and Italy, and the China US Business Alliance. So let's um, talk about the hunt for unicorns and a huge, huge welcome today from Venice Beach, I believe, uh, Paul Downs. Yes, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Venice Beach where I'm on holiday, but uh, it's appropriate because uh, Venice Beach is the home of Snapchat, uh, which dominated the local economy here until it got so big it relocated to a corporate campus. But mm. I'm a few a few steps from, from the Pacific. Uh, I can't quite see the digital economy in China, but you can feel it pretty much everywhere here. So thank yeah. you so much, Chris, for having me on the show. Well, thank, thank you, Paul, for, for joining us from your holiday as well. That's, uh, that's, that's appreciated. I'm, I'm imagining possibly a little bit by myself. Sometimes your holidays are working holidays as well. Oh, this is the pleasure, though, Chris. So I, can't, <laughs> I can't complain about interrupting you for this. And it's very early, so I'm not really missing anything today. <laughs> oh, no, it gets you going early. We could have had a run on Venice Beach or something. Uh, exactly. Okay. Would have yeah. been I won't be surfing today, but I will go out on the beach. <laughs> so, so, Paul, you've got a, a really, really fascinating background and when we when we spoke you were sharing with me a little bit about some of your influences and you mentioned uh there's some interesting kind of links the japanese hall of fame has a reference in your family the second world war island and even sauerkraut so can you help to to pull those together for us but also to uh, maybe explain a little bit about why they they influenced you and helped you become the person you are today of course, Chris, I'd be happy to do so. Thanks. Yeah, that was an interesting conversation. So let me try to um, boil down to some a few of the salient points. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in, in what you mentioned. Uh, so I, I grew up in a small town uh, in rural Wisconsin, and when I say small town, I mean 300 some people. Uh, so it was a tiny little village. Um, despite that, uh, I had a very strong international connections from, from a very early age. Uh, you mentioned uh, Jap- Japan. Uh, it's actually the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame, uh, where uh, when, when visiting the, uh, the world's uh, one of the world's largest uh, sovereign funds, the uh, government pension fund uh, of Japan. I stole away for a few moments uh, to visit uh, in the basement of the Tokyo Dome, uh, the Japanese Baseball Hall of Fame, where there is memorabilia about my grandfather's uh, baseball tour uh, in the very early years of the 20th century, before the First World War, uh, with his college baseball team. Uh, Japan was just beginning to uh, play uh, American sports and global sports, and baseball, as you know, has become quite popular uh, in Japan. Uh, and uh, my my grandfather was there. I knew a little bit about it from uh, the time I was growing up, but it was very eye-opening uh, to see that. So there was always that element in my family that there had been sort of international interests. My my father spent a number of uh, years uh, during the Second World War fighting and then living uh, in uh, in Europe, uh, in France, uh, and so there are various elements. My maternal uh, grandparents on the, my 
grandmother's side uh, were first generation uh, German Americans. Uh, but oddly enough, it was my Irish American grandfather, the one who went to Japan, who started uh, what is today the world's largest sauerkraut business. Uh, so uh, he actually uh, has shipped sauerkraut to, to Germany of all places. So there, it's, it, I grew up in a very small town in a sort of remote rural area, but there were always very uh, substantial international uh, influences there in my life. It was very interesting. So when I had the opportunity, I pursued it. Yeah. Wow. Yes, you can do have some very, very interesting ancestry if you do your DNA. (laughs) 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 Might find some more surprises. You never know. Um, So so how how did, did, I mean, all of that, that your your grandfather was sounding very interesting, all of his travels and your father, your father fought in the in the war and and travelled, and there was this sauerkraut business. You've got an Irish side to you. Do you think you've you've picked up anything from all of that? You know, that history. I know boxing is something you enjoy, for example. I mean, I think I think what I what I what I picked up from it is that um, there are um, very large cultural differences in different parts of the world. Yeah. But if you work at it, you can bridge them. And that's really been my career because I have long represented uh, international investors investing across borders. Uh, And as a lawyer, I look at two legal systems that developed independently and weren't meant to work together. And it's my job to make them work together. And a big part of that is cultural. It's understanding sort of the mentality, the right questions to ask uh, with someone who has grown up in a different system so that you get the answers rather than just the responses that you're expecting. Uh, so I think that that was the, the, the gist of the influence that I picked up uh, as, uh, as a young person. Uh, the boxing piece was, um, it was a small town, so there weren't a lot of team sports. Uh, it would have been hard uh, to, to get together uh, a baseball team unless you had a very large family. My, uh, my, my paternal grandfather, as we mentioned him, had a very large family, including seven brothers. So they almost made the nine necessary for a baseball team, formed a semi-pro team <laughs> with a couple of riggers. Uh, but uh, I was more interested in individual sports and boxing. Uh, I was large as a child, so uh, that gave me an advantage. Uh, I've also found over the years that as I travel around the globe, I like to stop in at boxing gyms. Um, there's some great ones uh, in the UK, uh, but also in uh, in Singapore, uh, in uh, in Latin America. Mexico has a great boxing tradition. Uh, Colombia, uh, Australia, a lot of fun. And you get sort of into the culture in a very, very different way when you know, mm. you're well, I'm not being punched in the face because I don't actually fight <laughs> when I'm yeah. on the road uh, for business. But it is another window to the culture. And it's a very multicultural sport here in the United States, more so than a lot of others. So yeah. that's uh, that's part of it as well. And it's also competitive. And as a lawyer, I have a competitive streak, not surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you'd be enjoying the Olympics, I would imagine. <laughs> Although boxing is very hard to follow, they stream it at very strange hours. Very, very common. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess so. So, how did you, how did you uh, happen to meet Winston, and how did this lead to writing this book on, uh, on the hunting? So that's that's interesting. You mentioned earlier meeting a hundred people uh, oh. as uh, as a theme. Uh, as as someone who was involved in representing sovereign uh, wealth funds, 
I found that one of the values that I brought to the representation for the clients was an understanding of how various funds operated. Uh, although they're big investors, they're often in the same deal. They don't really talk to one another uh, on a very candid level. They talk to their advisors. And no one really has a good sense of how things are done in Japan versus how they're done in Singapore versus how they're done uh, in, the, in the U.S. Uh, or in China. And so I made it my my business uh, to go around the world uh, and and meet the various sovereign wealth funds. Um, not that it was unpleasant to you know, spend time in Australia and New Zealand and China uh, and Singapore uh, and, and Canada. And at one point I was traveling to Toronto where there are a number of uh, government pension funds, which are very uh, significant investors around the world, very innovative and, and reviewed that way. And the only uh, office in North America for CIC, China's Investment Corporation, its, it's Cyber Wealth Fund, uh, was in Toronto. Uh, I think they decided not to go to New York initially and to sort of be in Canada where uh, Chinese investment was much more warmly welcomed at the time. And the head of that office uh, was, was Winston. So I huh. made a cold call uh, and went and bought him, bought, uh, met him. And uh, it was just as... The, uh, uh, the Chinese government was turning over the presidency. Uh, and so actually during, during our, our, our meeting, he kept looking at his phone and I realized what he was looking at. And so we started talking about uh, the change of, uh, of regime uh, that was about to happen and people speculating that I happened to be friends with a fellow who had been head of the Chinese equivalent of the SEC. So I knew a little bit about it. Uh, and we just found that we had lots of common interests and common background. And, Eventually, uh, it made sense to us uh, to sit down and collaborate because he brought sort of the China view, the inside the fund view. I brought sort of the rest of the world and the American view uh, and the outside advisor uh, view. And actually, that works very, very well in the book, as you'll see, because uh, we're able to take the topic uh, from multiple viewpoints. And as you know, uh, China-US has turned out to be uh, even more uh, of a, a topic of interest than we thought when we started the book. Mm. So, so, so why, why, have, uh, why is there so much tension between the China and the US over these wealth funds and just maybe we, we before we just go there maybe you, you start you started to talk about there being wealth funds in various in australia and singapore and china yep. and in india and some people may not have listened to the first in, interview uh some countries have these wealth funds don't they and they've chosen to to, to build them up whereas others don't and i think that's probably is of significance you know some have started them and built these huge funds up do you want to just help us just understand the landscape a little a little better, yes. and then, then maybe then we can talk about uh, why there's um, tension. Right. So first, first we talk, I, we talk about sovereign investors, which is a an umbrella term that includes basically two major categories. Each one comes in various flavors. Uh, one of the major categories is fairly commonly known, which is government-run employee pension funds. Yeah. So there's Calsters and Calpers in California. There's uh, Japan has a huge uh, social security fund, uh, and they collect all this money and they invest it so that it provides a return so they can pay the pensions when the time yeah. comes. Uh, other countries, uh, and this really started in the Middle East with, uh, with Kuwait, but uh, Texas and Alaska both have similar funds, uh, among others. Um, they have a wasting resource. Uh, in those three instances, it's oil. 
So when the oil runs out, uh, the source of the country's wealth is exhausted, unless you set some aside uh, for future generations. And really, it was Kuwait back in the early 1950s uh, that opened an account uh, at Bank of England uh, to set some money aside. Uh, and that actually came in very handy after Kuwait was invaded and had to rebuild. They actually had resources to draw upon. Uh, but it became a trend. Uh, so you had other countries that had other types of resources, uh, Norway with its oil, uh, but others that had you know, uh, natural resources uh, such, as, uh, such as Australia that decided to put something aside for future generations. Mm. Uh, and that really created the whole concept of sovereign wealth funds. China then came along with huge trade surpluses and decided to set some of that, that set aside uh, for uh, for later generations and for you know, major events and, and you know, pandemics, for example. Many of the sovereign wealth funds came to the rescue of their local economies in the pandemics. Uh-huh. Since then, they developed to perform other functions, such as developing the local digital economy. We could talk about that soon. Yeah. <laughs> Is that helpful? That, that's, that that's re- that's, that's, yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, so, and you know, in terms of the size and scale of them, they're p- some of these are pretty enormous. They, they dwarf, they dwarf, you know, uh, the amount of money that's available through sometimes venture capitalism and the like, don't they? They're they're, they're yeah, massive. That's, that's a very interesting point, and that that's been a big influence on on venture capital uh, in in recent years. Uh, the, the largest of them are you know in the trillions of dollars. Uh, and they have a lot of money to invest, and they diversify globally, uh, and they're in a lots, lots of different things. Venture capital has become interesting to them only in the last 10 years or so, because prior to that, the deals were so small that if you're managing a trillion dollars, you can't invest it, uh, oddly enough, a million dollars at a time. You just can't manage that. Yeah. So you need to have a minimum investment. For many of them, it's $100 million and they're happier with half a billion dollars uh, to put into a, into a deal. That's pretty hard to do in early stage venture capital. So you had a mix, which became very interesting, which was you had all this money and companies that initially didn't really have a path to that money. Suddenly they had the path to the money. They could put off the IPOs. They could grow really, really fast, really, really large. And you create the unicorns, uh, which the term refers to a private company, meaning not quoted on the stock exchange, with a valuation of more than a hundred, more than a billion dollars. Uh, and uh, you know, when the coin, the term was coined uh, less than a decade ago, there were a handful. There are now more than five or six hundred uh, of these right. companies because the money pushes in and recently the trend has accelerated uh in the first half of this year uh non-traditional investors meaning the uh, uh cyber wealth funds and other uh, large funds invested 75 percent of the money that went into startups uh from virtually nothing uh 10 years ago Wow! And the amount of money that went into startups in the first half uh, of uh, of this year exceeded, uh, almost exceeded the money that went into startups in all of the prior year. Uh, so these these funds have gone from a ten billion dollar investment annual investment in venture capital to more than a hundred billion, and probably well more than a hundred billion, maybe two hundred billion by the time we get to the end of this year. So this so this so it's a huge yeah. it's a seismic change. And this this explains why. Some, you know, more so in the last uh, 10 years than ever before, you know, a startup company has suddenly exploded, you know, from nowhere, you know. Exactly. They have readily available, almost limitless sources of private cash. Yeah. Uh, and they've been taking it in dollops. 
Yeah. <laughs> some, some have worked, some haven't worked. Uh, but it's an interesting phenomenon that was, uh, was noticeable when we started the book uh, and has exploded uh, since we uh, concluded the book. So it, mm. it, it vindicates uh, our thesis. Fantastic. Well, we're going to go to commercial break now. After, after the break, we will, well, we're going to explore, explore more. We're going to understand to talk about Belton Road and the blue, um, sorry, Belton Road and the Blue Dot initiatives. Uh, we're going to talk about things like uh, 5G and uh, even TikTok a little bit further down the, down the line. But to try and really understand what does this all mean? Um, what, what does this all mean? What is the impact? And I think this is really helpful in just understanding things like why some businesses are growing so exponentially, so quickly out of nowhere, why the landscape's changing so much. Uh, so, uh, Paul, this is great. We'll be back again with you in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific time on the voice america business channel if you hear a dog barking or an angel singing then you know that you're listening to waking up in america heard every wednesday at three pacific time valerie kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential adventure is always a must on waking up in america with valerie kirkard every wednesday at three pacific comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with uh, Paul Downs. We're talking about sovereign wealth funds and the impact that's having globally, which is quite enormous. Uh, Paul, could you could you share with us um, a little more background as to why there is um, such tension between China and some nations, but also China and the US in particular when it comes to uh, wealth funds? And maybe you could also explain the aims of the Chinese one. Um, I think that uh, there's an interesting, uh, interesting perspective on that, uh, Chris, because there, yeah, there are battles, obviously economic battles uh, playing out between the U.S. and China. If you open any financial press, uh, you'll see that. But the interesting fact is how it has 
focused and centered on the digital economy. Mm-hmm. And I think what has happened there is that uh, China maybe earlier than the U.S., Uh, recognize that uh, the digitization of everything uh, would generate huge economic rewards if you were there first uh, and you were able to dominate uh, the new economy. Uh, the U.S. Uh, had a very vibrant uh, startup uh, economy sector, uh, was pretty much government hands-off at this point. It's, in fact, largely located on the West Coast, as far as you possibly could be in the continental United States, that away from Washington, uh, sort of pointedly uh, avoiding uh, government entanglement, although very early on, it, it benefited from a lot of basic research and development. So there were two separate paths. The, the China sort of followed a state-fostered path where there was money made available uh, to invest uh, in these companies. Some of the big investors in uh, the uh, tech giants of uh, China, for example, Alibaba, were the state sovereign wealth funds and the state pension funds. So that's where a lot of that money came from. Uh, in the U.S., the pension funds were much less likely to invest in those than government to invest at all. Uh, and so you had private investors doing it in the U.S. But gradually, the U.S. Became to, came to recognize that there was a lot of power here in terms of you know, operating the systems that, that run our lives. And so the U.S. developed a national security review system for foreign investment in the U.S., And because of concern about the efforts of Chinese investors to buy U.S. companies and strip out the technology uh, and exploit it uh, in China for the benefit of China, those reviews became focused on government-sponsored investors. So sovereign wealth funds were right in the uh, aim at the sweet spot for these sorts of investigations. Some of them um, get around it quite easily. Australia is viewed as, as pretty much friendly, uh, and uh, uh, Singapore is is given a pass. But Chinese investment is looked at very, very carefully because of this national security concern, and it's expanded sort of way beyond what anyone would consider national security. Because because there's, there's a there was a strategy, wasn't there, to to utilize these funds to buy key parts of the infrastructure of other comp- countries. I think the I think there is uh, there are a couple of elements to it, uh, and you know people have different views on this, which is why uh, our book was an interesting collaboration <laughs> uh, because I think you know it, China will see uh, and will maintain that its investments are you know are purely commercial in nature that they need to invest the money they have all these dollars they've learned earned uh, from trade so they need to put it to work so that when their aging society needs the money, it's available. I think from the U.S. and maybe increasingly from other countries, uh, these investments are viewed as means to dominate industries uh, and acquire technology uh, and develop it at the expense of countries that are open to foreign investment, whereas China is less open uh, to it and sort of protects its own industries. That's a sense of imbalance uh, that's seen in the U.S. And the U.S. sees uh, the Chinese uh, pension funds and sovereign funds as politically motivated uh, investors, uh, whereas they don't see that with respect to, say, New Zealand or Australia or maybe even Singapore. Mm. And, and is that, do, do you, you know, from your experience of being kind of on the inside and Winston, do you, do you, do you believe that is what happens? Um, or because sometimes we, you know, we do, we do get, uh, you know, you know, we do, 
we do, we do find our leaders sometimes can steer our minds down a certain path, don't we? And I think I'm thinking about, <laughs> you know, Brexit over in this country, you know, for how our politicians seem to manage to make, uh, you know, uh, the Euro- European politicians um, come across quite negative for a number of years. And then of course, when uh, they want us to vote and ideally stay, uh, many of the politicians, not all in the European Union, a lot of the public uh, were swayed by those who wanted to leave and um, but there was years years of uh, indoctrination in some ways right no that's true I, I think you know, my way of responding to that is uh, given the policy decisions that the US government has made particularly was started under Obama really but but heightened under Trump uh, and continued largely under Biden it almost doesn't matter because the US government treats the, these funds as if they were politically motivated yeah uh, and as strategically investing in different industries. And so they're looked at with great skepticism, uh, whether they are or not is almost irrelevant at this right. point. That's how they're yeah. seen. So yeah. I'm dodging your question, Chris, but I do think that that's, yeah. <laughs> that's well, the bottom line. There's a, there's a lot we'll of never spoke. prove it one way or the other. Yeah, the spoken mirrors are lots of lots of areas of the world. Aren't they? Right. Um, what's interesting about it from the U.S. perspective, uh, Chris, if I may, uh, is that it initially started out as uh, a, uh, a reasonable approach to protect strategic defense technology of the U.S. Mm. Uh, the U.S. policy dates back uh, to uh, the 70s and 80s. Uh, when there was concern about foreign investment in the defense industry, aircraft and um, armaments and so forth. Uh, What's really bizarre to my uh, way of thinking uh, is that in recent years, uh, things like TikTok uh, are seen as a national security risk, Mm. uh, which when you look at, you know, sort of the musical video, a short form musical video app, it appeals mostly to um, children much younger than mine. Uh, you know, you say, well, how could this possibly be a national security risk? But it was treated as such. Uh, and there was actually uh, an order by the U.S. government forcing the Chinese owners to divest control uh, of TikTok, uh, which has sort of gone nowhere because the U.S. courts really said, well, what's the security risk? Yeah. Show us more. We can't just agree to this, uh, which is pretty unusual. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not without merit because it goes back to, for example, something like MoneyGram and Grindr, uh, which were both uh, objects of uh, Chinese takeover attempts. Grindr, uh, positively MoneyGram, actually, the, the, the clock ran out. And both of those, Grindr, as you may know, is, is usually called the gay Tinder. Uh, so it is uh, a, uh, an app for uh, a gay dating app. Uh, and it was discovered that it has some of the best geolocation uh, technology in the business. So that if you're on Grinder and you want to meet somebody, it's very easy to do because you can figure out exactly where uh, oh, the other people nice. are. For U.S. forces in Iraq uh, using Grinder, uh, this was a big security risk. Uh, and so it's been banned by the U.S. military and oh, the Chinese order was forced to uh, uh, to uh, disinvest uh, in the in the company, uh, which is which is interesting. Uh, MoneyGram similarly had data on uh, U.S. money transactions that was viewed as as uh, as strategic uh, and you know, TikTok falls into the same category. So there you are. You go from sort of nuclear technology uh, to uh, short-form musical videos, and it's all the same from the U.S. government's perspective. I see. Um, Fascinating. So what? um, there's a couple of... uh, I read uh, 
some information about, I think it was a speech speech you were doing, um, some of the points. And you were talking about Belton Road and Blue Dots Initiative. What, what are they? So this is another way that the, the battle between the U.S. Uh, and, uh, and China is playing out. So China uh, launched something called the Belton Road Initiative, which oddly enough has more to do with sort of rail and sea, but it was an investment program in countries around the world uh, of you know, Chinese funding for largely infrastructure projects, including many digital ones. So example, uh, for example, a digital city in, in Kuwait uh, is being built with Chinese funds um, to provide alternative uh, growth opportunities. It's a completely digitized uh, city. Um, the U.S. then got concerned about Chinese influence uh, through this sort of investment and partnered up with Australia and Japan to create something called the Blue Dot Network, uh, which takes a similar approach, has done a lot of digital investment in the digitization of economies in sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, while we're all sitting watching TikTok videos or on Facebook or whatever, whether we do age appropriate, uh, this battle is playing out uh, all over the world in Pakistan, in Indonesia. Uh, and these uh, strong wealth funds not only are pouring money into these initiatives, but they're also partnering uh, with sovereign wealth funds in various local jurisdictions. Ah, okay. so, so you have, you know, Places like Indonesia, which I just mentioned, which is um, doesn't have a lot of export revenues and doesn't have a lot of natural resources uh, to set aside for future gener- generations, but it's a huge country, uh, has set up uh, a sovereign uh, wealth fund, very conveniently uh, funded by uh, the sovereign wealth fund of Saudi Arabia. Maybe the U.S. is talking about putting money into it. So it's a whole different way of using this tool uh, to play out this sort of new cold war, the digital cold war around yeah. the world. So that's where the book gets really interesting and very timely. So you've got an accelerating trend in terms of investment in digital, and you've got the background of the battle uh, between the U.S. Uh, and China for domination in mm-hmm. this area. And you know, all hands on deck, all available tools, and the sovereign wealth funds are very convenient tools. The U.S. is actually ramped up a series of funds specifically uh, to address the digital economy. Yeah, so this is this is all a, a game of power going on in the back in the in the background. You certainly could say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just uh, there's big stakes because there's a lot of money at, uh, at play in big markets. So it's a very interesting area. Yeah, and uh, is there a um, is there a big Im- imbalance in the size of some of these funds between, say, you know, China, the US, and both of you and I have worked with a, a Singapore uh, wealth fund, uh, and uh, you know that's been established for a long time, hasn't it? Um, so, is, so is there is there you know an impact on by the size of the funds on the the, the reach and the impact that some countries are able to have? And uh, yes. yes. Yeah, and are, for example, you know, the Europe, for example, is that well behind the game uh, on a global scale? I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, Chris, but but Chris is uh, but Chris, Europe is out of the game. Out of the game. Uh, it really doesn't have uh, any sort of equivalent uh, financial entity. Uh, the U.S. Um, really did not jump on the sovereign wealth fund uh, wagon. The the Trump administration pushed for specialized funds. Uh, to uh, foster the development of 5G technology, for, for mm-hmm. example, in the U.S. China is on its third 
government fund uh, to develop microchip technology. I mean, they poured hundreds of billions of dollars into this and keep setting up new things. So the U.S. is is really behind. But your point on, on sort of the funds and their size and their global influence is a very interesting one because there are elements of sort of diplomatic or uh, non-commercial interest in many of these uh, types of investments. One, one interesting area right now, Chris, is India, uh, because China has you know, been uh, increasingly unfriendly to foreign direct investment in its digital economy. And recently, there have been regulatory changes, which have made it less appealing anyway. Uh, India is a huge market. Uh, it has been undergoing a digital revolution as the mm. uh, availability of uh, you know, wideband uh, digital uh, devices, uh, almost uh, ubiquitous in certain parts of India now, has expanded the market. Um, the U.S. is eager to team up with India to invest in these areas. Uh, Singapore has been very actively uh, investing. Uh, China is not welcome. Uh, and... A lot of the funding is coming out of the Gulf states. So you have large investments in the digital economy in India coming from Abu Dhabi, which has a small population and a very large fund. Uh, we're talking north of $800 billion in one fund alone. Uh, and from Saudi Arabia, uh, the so-called public investment fund of, of Saudi Arabia is a major investor in digital, in digital economy worldwide and is particularly targeted India. So you see sort of regional groupings coming out, and it'll be very interesting to watch what happens in India uh, as sort of the great game plays out there uh, in the digital economy. Um, I don't know if that's responsive to your question. There's a lot lot going on under the covers. Yeah, there's a lot going on that uh, most people are completely oblivious to, isn't there? The backdrop on the to the to the uh, to the world and its uh, its finances and I'm I'm kind of uh, I've only got a minute to go to a commercial break now so we'll go we'll go to commercial break but I've got another question I must ask you in uh, in just a couple of minutes I think it might be a long one so I'll uh, I'll save it <laughs> okay. we'll be back again, back again in just a couple of minutes do John is after okay. the break from the boardroom to you Voice America Business Network. Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program. One-to-one mentoring and coaching, facilitated leader development workshops and speeches. Email info at bemoreachievemore.com to arrange a free, no-obligation consultation to see how Chris and his team can help you. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You 
tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper. Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Paul Downs. We're talking about sovereign wealth funds and understanding what to go, what the backdrop to the world is really when it comes to financial matters and investment. And Paul, one of the things that was just sort of percolating through my, my mind as I was listening to you was uh, how much of the, you know, what's, what's been the impact of these funds in, when it comes, came to, say, the, the pandemic, but also how, how are these funds helping us to be, uh, develop a more sustainable way of living, you know, in a more intelligent way, it, it does sound a bit free for all the way you do, where you, you sort of really can describe it. You know, is there a, is, is there a, a message underneath here that there is actually some, you know, work for good that's going on and the sustainability of the planet? That's a very good question, Chris. And I think um, that's, that's something that we've been focusing really on the, on the digital economy. Uh, and on that, I would just say the fact that there's been huge amounts uh, of funds invested in the development of the digital economy prior to the pandemic enabled the pandemic actually to uh, function much better. I mean, there was a lot of investment in biotech, which accelerated mm. vaccines. There was a lot of investment in the digital infrastructure, which enabled us to do things from home that we never thought were possible, uh, delivery services and so forth. But on the bigger topic of sustainability, that's really prime territory uh, for these funds because they intend to be around for a long time. The notion was set aside money for future generations. It's pointless if the future generations are not there and that your investments are making it less likely that they'll be there. So the result is that there has been an increasing drumbeat uh, among uh, the funds generally, but uh, there have been a few leaders. Uh, and here, interesting, it's, it's the smaller nations. Uh, Norway, uh, which has a small nation, but a very large fund, uh, has been particularly uh, keen on um, more on publicly traded companies than on the digital unicorns in pushing for sustainability. It's an oil fund, ironically, but uh, they have uh, avoided investing in hydrocarbons. They have pressured boards to adopt sustainable uh, practices uh, and openness um, and you know, that has been a major, major theme uh, of the Norwegian fund. It's been a big leader in that area. Uh, New Zealand is another one that has taken a similar approach where they have been very proactive uh, in guiding the companies in which they invest or are allowed to invest in investing in sustainable ways and also socially responsible ways. An interesting interesting example there is you may remember, unfortunately, the Christchurch killings, yes. where there was a, a gunman. Um, as a result, uh, and it was live streamed on social media, which was most unfortunate. As a result, the New Zealand Superannuation Fund, which is their large uh, government uh, pension fund, uh, banded together um, trillions of dollars worth of uh, assets under management with other funds. And they all pledged uh, to put pressure on uh, YouTube and Facebook and other social media to do better at stopping live streaming of these sorts of events. So it's not exactly uh, environmentally sustainable, but if we're not around uh, to enjoy the benefits of these funds, it's, so there's a social conscience uh, that goes on. On the other hand, uh, you know, Australia's future fund, um, 
you know, says it's, it's a very difficult dilemma. Uh, if you say that we need to do only sustainable investments, that means I simply sell off uh, all the coal companies in Australia and I have no influence on how they operate. If I invest in them, I can go to the meetings, I can elect a director, I can say you need to do this in a more sustainable way, you need to plan for the future. So there's no clear answer on this and they're all reaching around to figure out what it is, but there are several ad hoc groups that have been formed uh, to try to figure out ways to do this. Uh, I think better minds than mine uh, are working at this and the sovereign wealth funds have a big role to play. Mm. So, uh, so there is there is some future stewardship go- going on. However, it's, uh, it's 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 operating in pockets at the moment, in silos, possibly. I think there's I think there's a dawning realization that it's not just sort of you know a good thing to do, but it is good investing uh, yes. if you're investing in the long term uh, to make sure that it's done in a way that it will not impact the value of your existing investments or uh, you know the global environment in the future. Yeah. So it's it's it, you know it's it's the best kind of do-goodism. It's 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 uh, fostered by self-interest. Yeah. yeah. One, one one area that uh, we've had a it's been, it's been a little bit of a theme actually this during 2021 and uh, and interestingly probably not a word that's re- really I mean somebody may may correct me but really been discussed on this show uh, in previous years which has been cryptocurrency and you know it it feels a little like that that tension that's occurred between countries around um, these these wealth funds and uh, you know legislation being put in place to to uh, protect and regulation and uh, to uh, compliance to to try and protect cryptocurrency feels like another area which is um, is leaving some countries sweating you know the uh, the Chinese have, have gone quite hard on it and they've been stopping people mining in the, in China um, but other parts of the world are kind of uh, a bit more open to it. And what's your view on on um, on cryptocurrency and uh, uh, and you know how do you see it imp- playing out? Because there's a there's a risk you know, uh, for governments that want to control that it undermines things like currency, isn't that? Exactly. I think I think you know, power and control are things that come up no, no. <laughs> uh, in this discussion. But let me let me take it first from the the, the viewpoint of the sovereign investors, the pension funds, mm. uh, and so forth. So they look at this new investment asset, uh, and for the most part, their you know their governance rules don't permit them to invest in it. It's not a stock, it's not real estate, mm. it's not a bond, uh, it's not infrastructure. Um, you know, the Norwegian fund has to go back to the parliament each time they want to you know, increase their allocation to real estate. They're not going to go back to say, we'd like to invest in, in, in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency because they'll just get laughed out of parliament. So the, most of them, as a practical matter, cannot directly invest in it. They see the growth in the area, and so they say, well, can we indirectly invest in it? Can we invest in cryptocurrency exchanges? Can we invest in companies that you know, lease uh, servers to cryptocurrency companies and so forth? They also look very carefully at their existing portfolios and say, well, what is threatened uh, in our existing portfolio by the development of, of particularly blockchain technology in general? Mm-hmm. So if I'm a big investor in a a financial institution that makes most of its revenues from recording stock transactions. Uh, and Bitcoin can actually do a better job of that. I need to be thinking about whether I want to be invested in that company for long term or talk to its management about their plans to deal with it. So that Im- impacts large investors and particularly long term sovereign investors in a big way. On the sort of more 
politically charged question <laughs> that you raised. Uh, I really can't claim any expertise, but I, I, I do know that uh, I think the, the world trading system is dominated by a few currencies, uh, none of which are Chinese or uh, other countries in origin. It's mostly the euro and the dollar. Uh, even the yen, uh, while it's an important currency, is not a medium of international exchange to, to a great extent. And I think some countries see cryptocurrency as a way to leapfrog around uh, that system uh, and say, okay, we don't want something that's controlled by you know, uh, Washington, by the Federal Reserve, or by the Bank of England, or by uh, you know somebody in, in Frankfurt. Uh, we want to be independent of that. The reason is that the U.S. increasingly has been using financial sanctions to impose its views uh, on the world. And if you trade in dollars, it's going to be very hard to continue doing business uh, and not comply with those. Whereas if you can do in cryptocurrency, which is outside the control of governments, that's the way around that. So I think that is the long-term thing to keep our eye on in that area, but I'm not sure uh, what the time frame is. So from an investment perspective, maybe it's uh, it's premature to talk about this for long-term investors, uh, but from a political perspective, sort of watch that space because I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see how mm-hmm. this develops uh, and affects the dominance of the uh, sort of incumbent currencies. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. Would you... Would you um... Would you be recommending the United Kingdom to focus on setting up its own sovereign wealth fund? Uh, I don't think we've got one. Um, as far as there's I'm been aware. talk, there's been yeah. there's been talk uh, about doing it, uh, and I think that uh, it, it's a useful tool uh, for for many countries. I think for some countries, and UK may fall into this. The the interest would be to use it uh, less to impact you know its diplomatic status or investment elsewhere than to in several countries do this to foster a domestic digital ecosystem Mm -hmm. um that's abu dhabi has been working very very hard uh on doing that they've actually developed uh, sort of a space program uh through sovereign wealth fund funding of you know digital technology uh in in their country nigeria has several funds that are focused in this area um France has a couple of funds that focus on this, and Paris has turned into something of a uh, of a digital economy center. So I, th- I think there may be a place for that in the UK, but yeah, far be it for me to start advising the UK government uh, on how to spend its money. <laughs> um, so when it comes to um, investment in in from sovereign wealth funds in in digital, for example, have you got any favorite kind of? You know, success and failure stories. Um, our book is littered with them uh, <laughs> because they, they make they make good tales. I think one of the big success stories uh, was uh, Alibaba, and mm-hmm. I think that's one that really got the cyber wealth funds interested in the area because it it remained a private company for a long time and sucked in a lot of money from the Chinese uh, cyber wealth funds, but also from places like Singapore and Malaysia, and they made eye-watering returns on it. Uh, and when you're managing a fund of you know, hundreds of billions or a trillion dollars, it's really hard to move the needle. It needs to be something that moves very, very big. Alibaba did that uh, for a number of, uh, of in sovereign investment funds. So suddenly that transformed them into looking at this area much more seriously. Uh, and then some of them like uh, 
PIF, uh, the Saudi fund in Abu Dhabi, uh, timed, uh, teamed up uh, with SoftBank uh, to create um, you know, their, their own fund. Uh, and that fund invested in a variety of things in the sort of the, the poster child for disastrous investments is WeWork. Uh, and I think a book has just come out specifically on WeWork, but I mean, it, it's burned through billions and billions and billions of dollars. Uh, and it's not clear that it's really a digital company at all. Uh, it ended up owning a lot of real estate uh, at a time when people are not going back to offices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it had you know, all sorts of uh, issues with the, the CEO who eventually got bought out for billions of dollars uh, after running the company into the ground. So there, there are object lessons uh, to be learned uh, in, uh, in both ends. One, one interesting one I think uh, that's overlooked is the Canadian funds have been pretty savvy investors in various fields and have been innovators in things like investing in infrastructure. Uh, one of them called OMERS, uh, the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement System, was an early leader in directly investing in venture. And one of their early investments was a little company called Shopify, which has sort of become a huge success globally, boosted even more uh, during the pandemic, uh, and has led most of the other major Canadian funds to open offices in Silicon Valley now, although Shopify was actually Canadian, so they didn't need to go to Silicon Valley, but they've all sort of awakened uh, to this need. So there are there are examples of really interesting ones uh, that have uh, come out. And there's a, there's a long list, which we, you, can, you can see in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. We're coming to the end of the interview now. I wonder if you've got a final message that you'd like to leave us with. I think the the message here is uh, that um, when you uh, in your life you know, have have an interest uh, and you can you know, leverage that interest into a, a a unique position to be able to be a, a conduit between different cultures, different groups, uh, run with it and reach out. You might meet interesting people like Winston Maughan and end up writing a book. Uh, you'll certainly meet a lot of interesting people like Chris Cooper uh, and others uh, around the world. And you'll get unique insight into how things really operate uh, yeah. rather than just sort of accepting that, yeah, all this stuff just appears on my phone. Yeah, well, well thank you. I've absolutely loved interviewing you today and talking with you and uh, and just getting um, – you know your your background, your story, and uh, you you know that meeting a hundred people you just have echoed echoed there, and just just helping us to understand what's going on. I think it's a really important book. You can um, you can buy the Hunt for Unicorns. It's uh, it's it's available um, out there on you know various different uh, platforms and uh, the usual sellers. Um, but it is a great book, and uh, I think it's an important book. Important. Uh, to really understand this. And Paul, is um, would you like people to connect with you in any way? Um, I think probably the best way is to find me on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That that rare social network that is uh, available both in the U.S. and China. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's where we find the most interest. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm going to let you go and enjoy um, uh, Venice Beach in, in a moment. But, but once again, huge thank you. Really been really great, Paul. I'm off to Silicon Beach. Thank you so much. Uh, excellent. And um, on next week's show, we have Christian Espinosa, and we're going to talk about um, the smartest person in the room. And uh, Christian wrote, wrote this because what he realized was uh, he was quite a smart guy in the various um, organizations he was working with, within a very high um, IQ. However, 
um, things weren't working out and he realized that actually, you know, there's a lot more than just IQ to being a great leader. So uh, we're going to talk about that next week. He's a really fascinating guy as well. Triathlons. I don't know how many times he's jumped out of a plane, but it was hundreds of times when I spoke to him. He even likes heavy metal music. Um, he's a really interesting character with a fascinating CV and, uh, and a really interesting book. So once again, huge thank you to Paul Downs and uh, any questions, comments, do come back to me, Chris at chriscooper.co.uk. I love to hear from you and I do hope that you've taken some ideas, some thoughts from this uh, that you can utilize uh, going forward. Uh, and, um, and if you found this show uh, helpful and interesting, please do share it and uh, please do let other people know because this is an important subject. So we'll be back with you again next week with Christian Espinosa and do have a fantastic uh, week and uh, look forward to speaking to you all again soon. Thank you for listening to the Chris Cooper Business Elevation Show. Please join your host, Chris Cooper, again next Friday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Be more. Achieve more.